This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 208. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood. If this is your first time joining us, this podcast is all about earning more money as a creative in ethical, wonderful ways. We explore a lot of different conversations from a lot of different backgrounds of people from all sorts of different fields in the creativity space so that we can learn all from each other and become better entrepreneurs ourselves. And so today's guest is Nicholas DiLorenzo. He runs a mastering studio called Panorama Mastering. And for those that are not familiar with, with the audio space, which is my background as a music producer, his business model is honestly one of the most difficult business models to make work in the audio industry. And the reason for this is mastering as a service this is an easy one for people to grasp. It's similar to like logo design in the design world. In a lot of cases, it's a relatively lower cost service. It's a relatively faster service. And you need a lot of clients and a lot of projects to keep that ball rolling and keep the business doors open. And what Nick's done is um, he's kind of gone through the full cycle of investing a lot of money into his business, getting it up off the ground, assuming people are going to show up and only getting a couple projects at a time <laughs> and quickly had to learn how to be a real business owner. And he's done that now. He has a six figure, over six figure business as a creative. And he's put a lot of things into place that I think that us as creatives, we can all learn from. It doesn't matter what field you're in, what services you're offering. We can all learn from that. And what I want you to really pay attention to in this interview is when he really starts to figure out how to be an entrepreneur. I think we all start as creatives. We all start as someone who is trying to just make a living with our creativity. We just want to make a little bit of money doing something we actually love. And there comes a time that I think most people hit this transition where if we're going to make this work, we have to actually be entrepreneurs. That's kind of the gist of this entire show. That's the whole point of the show is to help us be better entrepreneurs so that we can then use our creativity as a tool to fuel our businesses, our lives, but also be fulfilling at the same time. And so Nicholas goes through this transformation as a freelancer as someone who's taking his business seriously and not just waiting around for clients to find him, but also He's someone that is a constant seeker of knowledge. He looks for influences all over the place. He even mentions Chris Doe. If you don't know who Chris Doe is, he's huge in the design world, not so much in the audio world. And this is why I love this podcast now that we've started branching out and talking to more and more people in different creative fields is we get so much more input from other people that we can then implement in our little neck of the woods, whatever that is. If you're a music producer, which is a lot of our audience, if you're in design or videography, or even one of our listeners does services for real estate agents. So whatever your business is or whatever your freelance niche is, there's something you can take from not just this episode, but any of our past episodes on this podcast. And uh, I want you to pay also specific attention to this interview where, where Nicholas starts talking about user experience, which is just a really nerdy term. He actually read a book on UX design, which is user experience design, in order to make the experience for his clients as smooth as humanly possible. And when you are a mastering engineer, which is a high volume business, which is a lot of clients coming through at a relatively low dollar amount, meaning you're not making $20,000 per project. You have to figure this out because if you don't have a really smooth, great experience, you're going to get inundated with the emails and questions and be bugged by your clients. And so he's had to perfect this part of his business that I think all of us can take away pieces of this and implement into our business. So I'm going to stop rambling on this intro. I just want you all to pay attention. Wonderful interview with my guest this week, Nicholas DiLorenzo. Nicholas, thanks for coming on the podcast, my dude. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. We already talked about your background on the intro of the show and, and why you're on the show. But um, I want to start things out, man, at 
What was it that actually made you want to go into mastering? Because the service you offer right now, your Panorama Mastering, you have a great mastering studio, you've got a great business that you've built, a six-figure business, and it's a very specific service. Like for those who don't know mastering in the audio industry, like, or the audio industry in general, mastering is like the final step in the chain. Like one of the final things you do to, I guess this, to put it in layman's terms, to sweeten the song, <laughs> to make it just sound professional and balanced and so on and so forth. And we don't have to go into this right now, but it is a very specific skill set and a very specific part of the audio and music journey. What made you go into this in the first place? Instead of staying in like music production or staying in recording artists or, and that's, you know, there's a bunch of different places you could go. Why mastering? Because once I stepped into the box of interning at recording studios for professional paying gigs, my personality didn't line up with it. I love the technology side of it, but managing artists at midnight in a booth that are passing out or need extra time to, to finish a bottle of whiskey before they do their next takes. I didn't have the interpersonal skills for that. So I sort of bowed out of that race. I'm like, that's not for me. I'll do anything in the music industry, whether it was being in publishing or managing events, I didn't care. And it just so happened I stumbled across an assistant position at a mastering studio and I loved the workflow. I loved the hours. It was like, this suits my personality. So it was more a personality fit more than me being like, oh, I want to do this. I just sort of fell into it. I'm like, oh, this works well. I'm not dealing with crazy artists at one in the morning at a studio. I'm doing it on my own pace, nine to sort of nine to five. It's, everybody knows that's a fallacy when it comes to business, but yeah. I mean, you started out as an assistant position. You were working with another master engineer. How long were you at that? And then how long did it take you to transition out on your own as a master engineer? two years because a lot of the people I knew were hobbyists, people starting out, producers my own age in those early 20s sort of age. They can't afford top tier mastering, but they're like, well, the next best thing is the assistant. So let's start using him. And I was freelancing out of my bedroom. And then it got to the point where every single day I'd have people coming into my bedroom to master records. And this was like real chop shop setup from the get go. And I'm like, well, I've got the knowledge and experience working in a professional facility. I've got the clientele coming in. Let me build something for it because when this assistant position runs out, because you outgrow positions eventually, I need to have something. So either go all in or figure out something else. So how, how important, like, could you have actually launched as a freelancer without working as an assistant under this guy first? Or do you think that was like an imperative part of the journey? Because I think anyone listening right now could probably find if they're brand new at whatever they're trying to do, they could probably find some sort of assistant position to work under someone who is experienced. And a lot of people either scoff at that or they don't want to take that path. Do you think that's something that's necessary? Was it something that was helpful for you? Could you've done it without ever working with someone else? I could have, but it would have been a really bad struggle. Would have been a really bad struggle. I'll give you an example. An assistant position, the tasks you could do was something as menial as making coffee or dusting the desk all the way to topping and tailing or doing tape archives for catalogs. So you could go super technical and actually get hands-on, or you will be making coffees, dusting, vacuuming. And, and the thing is, and this is what people, when they sort of think about getting into an assistant or intern position, they think it's going to be so much fun. I'm going to be getting into the technical side. We're going to be hands-on. But the most valuable things I learned was simple things like making a coffee for the clients is so important because it's about that experience they enjoy. Good coffee, by the way, not trash coffee. Not trash coffee. Being able to keep the room clean and tidy is part of that experience. It's, you know, how you welcome clients when they come in. Those were professional standards, which I hadn't experienced. Even the way you send out an email or, or get deliverables across to a client and name things, not very hard, but 
you'll have a very hard time learning on your own without actually going into a space or an engagement with a professional who has those systems set up to learn from. Yeah. And that was something that I think I was missing in my journey as a freelancer is I was so adamant on being (laughs) self-taught. It's a gift that I have. And it's a struggle that I have that I just want to do everything myself. Like I don't want your damn help. Sorry. I don't want to work for you person who's maybe been doing this 15 years and I think you're doing it all wrong, but you're probably not. That's an issue that I have. But as a, like an Enneagram eight, my number one drive is, is freedom. It's like control. I don't want to have to be under the control of someone else. So I can't stand the thought of working for someone else, but I love that you were able to glean that sort of stuff and learn what they were doing. Right. But also maybe some things that they might've been doing wrong that you could have done better. Cause to me, it's so much easier to spot what someone's doing wrong than to fully appreciate what they're doing. Right. So like, even sometimes if you're working with someone who's not amazing at what they do, you still can glean a lot from that as long as you're doing things to make it a better experience for your own clients. So you moved, I assumed as a slow transition out into the full-time freelance world where you're out on your own as a mastering engineer. Talk about that transition. Was it just like a smooth, you just had clients lined up? Was it a struggle? Like give us an idea of that moving out on your own as a mastering engineer. So for the last year of my system position, I was designing and getting prepared to build my own facility because I had the clients lined up for my freelance work. And as soon as I finished the assistant position, probably four months later, I'd finished building and moved into the new space. And the transition was really hard because, again, I was very young at this point. I would have been 21 years old and I've had a bit of experience freelancing where I've been sustaining myself off it. And then I went out and spent a bunch of money building a space. Like this is the room within a room built invested in the gear. And the reason why it's a hard transition is because when you're younger, you're a little bit more ignorant, or at least I was, okay, I'm not going to make that generalization. I'm like, I built it, they will come. So my days were like, I got the website, I got the space, I've got some clients, which was like more of an ego, not an ego, it was more like a vanity check. I don't know what the word is there, but it's like people were saying, I value you to give you money to exchange something. So it made me feel good. But then the reality sets in. It's like, well, just because you built the space doesn't mean anybody owes you to come to it or to employ you. So I'd probably do like two, three sessions a week, which is horrible standards for a mastering engineer. And then the rest of the time I'd be like playing video games and outside tanning, go to the gym. Like, and then it wasn't until a few years later, I was, I'm sort of like, this isn't going anywhere and I'm going to kick my ass into gear. But that transition was sort of like, Ignorance is bliss and then sort of shit starts going, okay, what the fuck's going on here? This isn't, something's not connecting here and I'm going to figure that out. A lot of people have that oh shit moment where they put all this work, time, effort, energy, sometimes money into their business, getting it off the ground. And they listen to that little whisper in their head that says, if I build it, they will come. And then no one comes. <laughs> Two or three people a week, by the way, this is something worth explaining about the business model that you're in with mastering this is generally a much higher volume, meaning like you do a lot more projects and work with a lot more people at a much lower price point. It's a volume game versus like someone who may be in like the design space where you're working with like a full branding package and charging 20, 30 grand for it. Or like when we had our guest on episode 206, when we had Ryan Coral on, you know, he's doing these video projects that are up to $100,000. So it's like completely different business model where you're working with a corporate client for a big project for a lot amount of time with a lot on the line and a lot of moving parts and a lot of employees Nicholas is in the other kind of business model, which is like, I'm working with a lot of clients. It's relatively smaller projects, but they all add up over time, which is why two or three projects a week ain't going to cut it. It's a very difficult business to make. And honestly, I, I try to advise people not to go into mastering. That's my general business advice in the audio world, because it is such a saturated, hard to differentiate. You got to get a lot of things right, which I think is one of the reasons I want to get on the podcast is 
Mastering is a notoriously difficult business model to make work. You built it. Some people came, but not enough to really call it a full-time living. And so this is a place a lot of people are. So what did you do when you realized like, I can't just go to the gym and tan outside and play video games in my free time when I only have two or three clients. Like I am responsible for getting clients now. It's not someone who's overlooking me saying, all right, Nicholas, make some coffee now. All right, Nicholas, do this weird random thing that only master engineers understand the reference to, like you said a second ago with something about tape. Oh, okay, Nicholas, reply to these people for me. You don't have a manager now. You're your own manager. You're your own technician. Talk about that transition where you finally realized that and you had to start taking this business seriously. Again, still young mind, jaded, because when you're young, it's like, oh, this is so exciting. This is so cool. This is so exciting. The stars sort of aligned where that was sort of where the Gary V come up was sort of happening, which I don't neither see as constructive or destructive. It was just a thing that was happening and I was consuming and I'm going, okay, I'm going to do something. Now, what did I do? I did everything from doing YouTube videos to more social media, to doing lead magnets and things coming in. I was just throwing shit at the wall. I was doing a million things and every single thing I did, I could probably say was a failure. Like as in, it just didn't work. But every time it didn't work, I learned something. So instead of pissing the time that I wasn't having sessions down the drain, I was just doing stuff. I created cool little checklists, which you can download and get your email. And then I'll send you out an email, like all these little sort of marketing things, some would hit, some would miss, but I was learning. And I think the idea of time in the game learning is important because a lot of people, especially in business, they'll try one singular thing. Okay. So they'll go and they'll be like, I am going to make this product and it's going to help me grow my business and they put all their eggs in one basket, it doesn't work. And they're like, no, it was all wrong. Everything's shit. I don't have that secret sauce. I don't have that silver bullet solution. But the reality is it's like we all have different knowledge bases or I think you follow Christo a little bit. In one of his videos, he mentions the boundary of your knowledge or, or the edge of your forest of knowledge. And then it's only until you reach the edge of that, that you can expand further on it. So it's like, until you actually do something, you can't reach the limits of what you know to then go further. I just did that a lot. My circle was like this big. And then I'd like, you know, go to there. And that was doing a lead magnet. And then I'm like, oh, that worked. That didn't work. And then my circle would grow bigger. And then I just keep expanding my circle of knowledge and understanding of what works, what doesn't, how to operate within a market. And then three, four years down the track, I started sort of going, okay, some things are sticking much more now than others. To be honest, I can't even recall what was working and what wasn't now in hindsight. Now I'm at a point where I've just got a little bit more intuition to understand how to move in my business and make it work. Man, you make an, a really interesting point. Like, I love that you can't even look to a specific thing that worked because you were trying to do so many things. So let's just go back to Gary Vee for a second. He's the most loved or hated entrepreneur I know. <laughs> some people love him. Some people hate him. Like, I don't know many people that are like, yeah, he's okay. And the reason that people hate him, if they do hate him, is because he is the front runner of the hustle and grind mentality on the internet and do everything, be everything, hustle kind of mentality that he he stands for. I don't necessarily agree with it, but here's the cool thing that I think is a wonderful takeaway is that it pushes you to taking action. And I want people to pay attention right now. Like people that struggle, freelancers that are not earning what they want to earn. They're not having the success they want to have. They're not getting the clients that they want to get. Maybe they're working with some clients, but not the ones they want, not the bigger, better clients. The thing I see most often is that they do no action <laughs> or they do what you said. They take one action and say, oh, it didn't work. I'll try something else. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, let me spend 50 bucks on a boosted post on Facebook ads. Oh, Facebook ads doesn't work. Oh, let me reach out to 10 leads, uh, cold outreach. Oh, cold outreach doesn't work. 
oh, let me try posting on Instagram or TikTok. Ah, 10 posts later. Oh, it didn't work. I didn't get a million followers. And so this is the, this is the thing they repeat over and over again. It's a pattern. And what you found was that you were at least exploring different areas and something was sticking here and there. Maybe it wasn't a lot of success, but eventually you honed your skills and your knowledge to the point where more and more was sticking. And here's the thing I just wrote down in my notes here is I can give you two guarantees. Here's guarantee one. If you take no action, you will get no results. If you take some action, here's the other guarantee. If you take some action or a lot of action, better case, you will get a guaranteed result. It may not be the result you want, but it'll be some sort of result. And that allows you to then point your direction to pivot and try something else. So I want to actually move into something that um, I know is one of your superpowers. And I love talking about superpowers on this podcast. You told me before we started recording this, that you read a book about UX, which for anyone who doesn't know what this is, it's user experience. And you read it and you implemented this on your emails. Just talk through this because this was fascinating to me. And I really want to go deep into this conversation because like user experience is everything as a service professional. Whenever you're offering a freelance service, the experience that you give someone from your website to the emails they get from you to the experience in the office or in the studio or in person or every single touch point that you have is part of the user experience. And you implemented this in a very specific way with your emails. Just talk about that. So I'll, I'll backtrack one step to fill in more context as to why I started going down it. So Sam Matler from EDM Prod suggested I read the book Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. For anybody who's read that book, it's about creating the most insanely f***ing good products or services or whatever you bring to the market that outlives your time in the market. So the experience for me is what I sell to the market in terms of mastering. It's like you design a logo for someone. That's cool. But how do they remember you from designing that logo? What's that experience like? That's what they remember. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm mastering records for people. They're getting a service out of me. They like the result, but how can this result outlive my time working on that project with them. So in two months, three months, three years, five years time, they remember that experience having worked with me, mastering that record for them, that they go, wow, that was so incredible. And because my business is typically referral based, that was really important to me. So I'm like, okay, I got to figure out all the ancillary parts of mastering a record for somebody in terms of the communications, the way they engage me in getting a quote, emailing me, me responding, me sending out things. How is that experience look like for them? And that's why I'm like, I started looking into UX design, which is a user experience design. It typically pertains to more digital things in terms of how you design an app or design a landing page or design a website. And, and it basically denotes the interaction between the user and the product, whether it's an app or a website and how they navigate that and what their experience is accessing that information and navigating through it. So this book, A Project Guide to UX Design. It's a very technical book. It's a very big book on how people do UX design. And I thought, well, I want to read this. I want to understand it because the most common thing that I'm doing outside of mastering records is sending and responding to emails, giving feedback on work in terms of before it comes in for mastering, sending out an invoice, requesting information to fill me out on the scope of a project, um, delivering files to people, updating files for people. How do I communicate these things? Because if you go eight years back to the first masters I was sending off when I was just starting out was, hello, John, loved working on your master. Here's a link. The link would be pasted HTTPS, blah, 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 Wally, Nicholas. Well, that's not very good user experience because it doesn't tell people what's in that file. How do they use the information in that file? 
what's the most important information? So I can pull up my template for delivering a file. What are the deliverables? It says which files are for press kits, which files are for distributors, which files are for Apple Digital Masters. It says that these files will be available up and until X date. It gives people the session notes. It tells people where they can look at for how to upload to digital stores, where they, like, it gives people a lay of the land of what they're getting so they can navigate that information. You know why that information's important? Because if I just send a link with five masters there in terms of one for distributors, one for your press kit, one for Apple Digital Masters, blah, 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 they'll all come back and go, which one do I upload to the distributors? Which one do I use for the press kit? I'll get three emails from the same mastering project asking me questions, which I can inform them beforehand on that. So I've got a project delivery emails, information for your session emails, that's for mixing sessions, a mix feedback template for when I give people mix feedback, an invoice email, if I'm updating a project email, a feedback request form in terms of after a project finishes, an introductory email when I try and introduce two different contacts in the industry. I have an email and a framework for introducing them, a quote email, a follow-up email if I need a follow-up on the lead. Those are the main ones I use. Most people probably have some, some version of this where it's like in every single part of the journey of me working with someone for the first time or first time contacting them or them contacting me all the way to getting the deposit to the remaining balance to the final delivery to any revisions and so on and so forth. There's emails that go out all along the way. You already probably had some of these, but what you did with the UX design is you went back and revamped every single email based on a better user experience so that the client leaves super stoked working with you. Like they think like everything is taken care of. Like when you and I started recording here, we have a checklist of things to go through ahead of time to make sure our conversation flows smoothly, to make sure we don't have to worry about something popping up or something dinging or something not sounding right or not looking right so that we can just focus on the conversation. That's part of, I guess, user experience because the people listening to this podcast now get to benefit from that. So think about it from your perspective. Like you have these emails already. Why are they not making them the best you can be? Not you, Nicholas, but the people listening right now. So talk through like what were some big ahas you had with just general user uh, design principles that you were able to deploy into these emails or other areas that you work with clients? The first one is hierarchy of information. What's most important? Let's say in a deliverable, there's a lot of minute details, which are sort of tertiary to the main context of what you're delivering. So you got tertiary details, which they need, but they don't necessarily need up front. You've got very important details, which are very critical to the information that's being communicated. So hierarchies, number one, is super important. The second thing is also the engagement. So I'll give you two examples. The first thing is when I was doing these emails, each one probably went through five different revisions where I was just trying to cut down the word count. If something warrants a person spending five, 10 minutes in an email, it makes sense. But most five, 10 minute emails are better just to have a call. You don't need to write paragraphs out for any of those sort of emails that would go out. I just have notes in a notepad and then I'd have a let's book a call link because there's no point giving them five, 10 minutes in an email. They'll be like, oh, this is so overwhelming. They'll misread things. They'll miscommunicate things. Not worth it. The second thing is the way you absorb information, the quicker you're able to consume it, the quicker you're able to absorb it. I'll give you an example. With your checklist, okay, I will guarantee you if you sent me that checklist as a form on a link in the email, I wouldn't have bothered with it. I would have brushed over it and it would have been like, oh, this is cool. I'll get to this tomorrow. Whereas the fact that you did it at the start of the podcast where we're engaged with one another, 
means you have my direct attention. You're getting direct feedback. I'm giving you direct feedback and I'm not going to back burner. So the user experience of that was really cool for me. I also just sent you an email with my booking template email so you can actually see. Yeah, we'll have that on our show notes page. If you go to sixfigurecreative.com slash 208, we'll have uh, links to anything we mentioned on this podcast, including the text from that email template. Perfect. Yeah. So hierarchy is important. Read time is important. Scale is important as well because scale guides the eyes. We read left to right, top to bottom. So this might be a little bit hard to delineate on a podcast, but I have two columns on the left column, larger, bolder subheadings on the right column is context or fill-in or the copy that needs to be there. So that way, as people scroll down an email, they can read on the left, give them context. Oh, this is about the scheduled date. Okay. On the right, it has all the information. Oh, this is about if I need to contact them. Okay. On the right, there's a smaller detail. So that way they can follow that information logically. I feel like this sort of stuff applies to more than just emails, more than just websites. And and just to back up for a second and explain why this is so important, as Nick pointed out earlier, his business runs on referrals. So if at the end of the project, if the experience wasn't amazing in every way, shape or form, there's a less likely chance that he'll be referred to someone else. And as freelancers, this inevitably becomes our number one source of clients is referrals. That's the goal is to just be 100% booked up with word of mouth clients. And the faster you know this client experience or this user experience in every single element of your business, obsess over it. Like be obsessive over it from every single email to your website, to your, we were, I was joking with you off air, your LinkedIn bio on Instagram is a absolute mess, but like every little, (laughs) just to be truthfully honest with you, every single little element of like experience with you is just top notch, grade A, that sort of stuff is what helps get referrals. Obviously like the personal stuff, having a good personality, go reread how to win friends and influence people. If you haven't read that in a while, and that's one of my yearly reads, these sorts of things are what adds up for the referral. And the quality of work is actually secondary. In my opinion, I'm not going to speak anything bad about your quality of work. Nicholas, but there are likely other master engineers who put out similar quality work to you that are not getting the same gigs that you're getting simply because you've obsessed over things like user experience. So are there any other areas that you have found to just really obsess on user experience and gotten results from getting referrals from people? No, it's mainly in communication. So even the way you pick up your phone, if clients come around, I'm like a bit of a neat freak with the studio. Like it's very minimal. It's always clean. I don't have junk around. That was actually one of the things I learned in my interning position at recording studios, that all the extra gear, the cabasa on the side of something or, you know, a shaker here or a set of guitar pedals there, people would start fiddling around in the control room and they wouldn't be focused on the work at hand. So for me, it's like when people do come in, they're completely focused on the craft, on the project, on the process, which is really important. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers, number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. 
We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. Going back to this, this is part of differentiation. Bring this into your own freelance niche, whatever you're doing. There's probably other people doing it just as well as you. And so in order to stand out, in order to differentiate, it takes a lot of work. User experience or client experience, those are ways to stand out and differentiate yourself. But what are some of the other things you've done to stand out from other master engineers to say that like, I'm the one you want to hire, not this other person. Again, not that it's a competition, but in some regards it is, if we're being completely honest, like we do want the clients. So like, what are you doing to stand out and differentiate yourself? I'll take you through my thought process when I was starting out because when you're passionate about any creative industry, whether it's photography and you're watching Peter McKinnon videos or design and you're on the future page and you're looking at different typography and you're really into the, it's almost like you place this craft, this passion on a really high pedestal and all the outside influence influences your decision-making. It was the same for me with mastering. I'd see the studios, I'd see the people working with gear and, and, and all the cool stuff they were doing. And I felt like I had to do the same, especially with the marketing side of things. I had to have Instagram or YouTube posts about how to master a record, like very like, this is what people want to see because I'm infatuated with it right now in terms of that pedestal style. That can be really bad because then you just end up copying what's been done. It's like, that's already been done. You end up copying it and you don't end up finding your own path. And that is, I think, the most dangerous thing. What's important if you're really passionate about what you're doing, and it can feel a little bit awkward at first, and it's something I've leaned into pretty hard over the last 12 months, is reality is we're always learning, and it can be a little bit embarrassing learning because we make mistakes. Like you said before this show, you know, you've checked out my stuff, you know my audience and my target market are other engineers and other producers. So I show my target market my process of learning and understanding my craft and further developing it. And it's a very different take for mastering engineers to do because we're meant to be, especially proficient people like Peter McKinnon, Christo, Matthew Encina, they're incredible craftsmen. They, they never show their weaknesses. They're always showing the best of what they're doing. And that is incredible because that's what they're built it on. Whereas for me, it's sort of like, I'm really good at what I do, but there's so many other people who are really good at what they do. How many people are really good at improving themselves and making mistakes and learning from them. And I sort of put that on a pedestal now on a lot of my content where I'm like, oh, I'm exploring this. And I just learned this about compression. And, oh, you know that video I did the other day on this particular topic? Yeah, I was wrong because I learned this about it from this person. So I'm making that more the forefront of my marketing because people connect with that in my industry. They're like, that's my differentiating point is that other engineers see it and they're like, oh, he's just like me. He thought listening at 96 kilohertz per second, which is a technical term, like listening to music at this resolution was so much better and he can't actually hear the difference, nor can I. Okay, that's cool. So that's that's sort of been my sort of thing. You, you really have to find what, you, what your truth or meaning behind your craft is and be comfortable with that rather than fitting into other people's boxes. I don't know these people. They're probably lovely people, but there's like a, an Instagram family called the Bucket List Family and I can't stand looking at their stuff. 
It's just an Instagram traveling account with like a family and everything on their feed is absolute perfection. And as someone who's traveled for like six weeks at a time, it becomes a slog. Even after six weeks, I'm like, I'm ready to go home. But this family travels nonstop. And I'm like, that is, that is not fun. I'm sorry. Like maybe they love it. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But bringing this back to freelancing, so many other people see these like perfect accounts of other freelancers. This is especially common in the photography niche and the design niche where like where image is perfection and having this perfect image. People get sick of that stuff. So it's sometimes it's good to zig when everyone else is zagging, like we're zag when everyone's zigging. I don't know which way you say it, but when everyone out there is trying to be perfect, it's the one person who's saying, I'm a little bit of a klutz. I'm a little different. That's where you stand out. That's where you differentiate. That's where you're saying, I'm not a perfect person. It's so funny that we were talking again off air where we're in the middle of an interview and we might mess something up. And I'm like, oh, you're going to see the other side of this podcast, Nicholas, where we are able to cut out all the crap that I mess up and it makes me look perfect. Um, <laughs> it's like, it can be a breath of fresh air to show imperfection and to show what you're learning. And that just really highlights for people who want to do content, which we're going to get into in a second, because you're doing a lot of it now for people who want to do content. You don't have to be perfect. There can be, there are content creators, especially in other niches that are more of the reluctant hero, kind of the technical term for marketing, the reluctant hero, where it's like, I don't necessarily want to be doing this thing, or I don't necessarily feel like I'm called to be the expert. I'm just the student here. I'm just learning. And I feel like I would love to bring what I'm learning to other people instead of you relying on these like perfect porcelain people who are like, (laughs) I want to say fake, but who are excluding a large portion of their imperfect life from the internet in order to look better. So I like that as a standout point, but you talk about content. I want to bring that up because you're doing a lot of content now. And this seems to be a large portion of what you're doing to differentiate as well, because I glanced through some of your TikToks, some of your Instagram stuff, and I got a good feel for who you were. And honestly, before this interview, I'd never really seen you speak, but I saw clips from other podcasts. I saw you doing some like how to's and some things you're learning. And that brought a lot of like clarity, like what kind of person Nicholas is. And, And that sort of stuff helps you stand out. What was your aim putting out content on TikTok or Instagram or wherever you tend to put out content? What was your aim at the start when you first started this? Oh, when I first started, it was get more business. And this, we're talking like six, seven years ago. It was, I'm going to do this, get more business. And it was the worst way to approach it because it creates a lot of burnout. It creates a lot of self-judgment, especially things aren't working. And people look at nicely made YouTube videos and they're like, I enjoyed that. That's a cool video. I want to do that. And they're like, okay, I'm going to point a camera and do it. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You didn't get a video, you got an experience, you got a story, you got a start, middle and end. Mark Bone has a YouTube channel, he's a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, and he talks about having a story, a character, a struggle, a journey. And that's actually how I do my videos now because it's much more engaging for me to make that content. Now, I'm not concerned about if it's bringing in more business or not. I'm trying to communicate the value that I have in the studio. And then this byproduct of that, yeah, more people recognize business, other engineers get on board, they hit me up. Yes, that happens. But all I'm trying to do is communicate the story of or the value that I have in my studio and what I'm doing. And I think of it like that. Every time I set out to do a video, it's an exciting engagement. I'm no longer shooting a video. I'm almost like a documentary filmmaker. I'm thinking, what's the story here? Who's the main character? What's their struggle? And how do they build up to that? And, you know, like I'll give you an example. I I put out a video today on compression and I'm not going to get too technical on on this because I don't want to deviate. But basically what it was, was me going through the exploring of this technology and understanding the fundamentalist, the most basic level of it, which I already understood, but I didn't understand completely 
to a great depth and then creating tests and developing it. And that was my journey. It was like, I use this tool every day. How can I use it better? What do I need to understand? Let's explore this together. And that creates a good video for me because people enjoy that. They see it and they get engaged in it. And to me, that's really rewarding as outside of the whole business of doing business. It's like a cool little hobby now. On episode 204, we had James Martin on the show from Made by James, who's a well-known designer. And I don't know if he has a fully similar approach to that where he's kind of sharing what he's learning. But I think the thing that you guys have in common with each other is that you were always sharing what it's what it would look like to work with you. And I think that is a, a huge part of, if you are trying to get clients, is yes, you're putting story into it. Yes, that's very smart. But at the very least, people are understanding like, what does it feel like to work with Nicholas? And here's the other, the, side, the added benefit to that is you are always showing that you are learning and you are getting better and you are trying to master your craft versus someone who's like, there's other approach of like, I am the expert. But I think most people struggle with positioning themselves as the expert. They have imposter syndrome. It's really hard to create content as a freelancer if you have imposter syndrome holding you back because you look to these people that are like, like James Martin, who have their stuff together, who are incredible at what they do. And you say, how could I make content like that? I can't be the expert because he already is. Whereas Nicholas has said, I, I'm not going to pretend to be the expert. I'm out there learning. I'm out there honing my craft. I'm out there asking relatively simple questions like, what is compression? It's this thing I use every day as a master engineer. Let's explore this together and bringing people along for the journey of, of learning and exploration and, and testing. So I, I love that approach. And I probably could implement more of that myself because I'm still... I'm still learning myself in the business world, in marketing, in client acquisition. I'm learning all the time and I feel like I don't really explore my struggles and ups and downs with this. And one of the things I'm trying to bring to this podcast more and more are the struggles people are experiencing as they go through their business. And that's one thing I'm trying to bring up with you is just like, as you're doing these things, what is the struggle? Where's the story? What's the main character? Kind of the things you were talking about from the film industry with content. Let's go back to this now that I've gone on my long spiel that I like to do on podcasts with guests as you stare at me and think, Brian, when are you going to stop talking so I can speak? I'm the guest here. Don't stop talking, Brian. I want to bring up creating content. One of the things that's holding freelancers back from this more than anything is they don't have time. And we talked about before our interview, how you freed up a ton of time in your business and now can then invest it on working on your business. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast at length here in the past, on past episodes, about working in your business versus working on your business. So many freelancers are stuck working in their business, doing the work, and they never have a time to work on themselves or on their business, improving things, building systems, eliminating things they shouldn't be doing. Talk about some of the things you've done to free up time so that you can actually pursue some of these other initiatives that may be a long-term play. Content is not make it and I'm famous overnight. It is a long-term play. So what are some of these things you've done to free up time to then explore those other areas? So the main thing was, I because remember I'm a volume business and I think it doesn't matter if you're a volume business or not, you still have to understand how many projects you got coming in, how much each of those projects will cost, how many you need to get through a year. So basically I did that and I'm like, okay, if I do six masters a day, every day of the week, Monday to Friday for the year, I'm good and the rest of the time I can do for everything else. And that's literally what I did. I'm basically like, I'm capping it at six and whatever needs to get backlogged gets backlogged for a couple of weeks and the sixes roll over. And then the rest of the day I, I do what I need to for the business. You work on a queue system. So basically like when people submit songs to be mastered, you just put it in line and you do it in the order that they come in basically. Is that how you do it? Yep. Unless people have like for albums and stuff, I'll know a month or two in advance and I'll just block out that time in advance. And it's pretty cool because I wake up at four o'clock and 
start email and admin early on in the day and finish at about 5 p.m. So I've got a lot of hours in the day that I'm working on my business. So those six hours of work, six blocks, I can move around and juggle and put some at the end of the day, move them here, move them there, take one off one day, put it on another, do something else on that. Other. Like, so I got a lot of flexibility with that system because my projects are in one hour blocks, so to speak, if you're just working on singles, if you're working on albums, it could be two days, but that's a whole nother thing. But, but the idea is I just go, what do I need to, to keep the business afloat? or growing, I think is a better term because I did make sure it would be growing based on my numbers and then just make sure I fill that out. And then the rest is all cream and fun. And a lot of the working on my business is working on things I'm passionate about. So that way I can put the effort into, into them and investing time that is valuable into them. And it's funny because you're not like a lot of master engineers I talk to where it's like all technical numbers, dollars, since like metrics, systemization, automation, all the crazy things that a lot of mastering engineers talk about typically, a lot of it was just like based on feel, like what lit you up, what made you excited. And I feel like that resonates with more, more and more creatives is like, we're not just trying to build a business so that we can just make money and be a robot machine. Like this has to fill us up as well. So I like that you capped your amount of work per day at six songs. I don't know many people that would cap it at a certain amount, but like knowing what your limit is, is great of just like, I'm only doing this so that I always have this available to work on my business or on myself, which again, my thought process here at Six Figure Creative is there is no difference between your business and yourself as a freelancer. So any chance you get to work on yourself, you are also working on your business. Anytime you work on your business, you are also working on yourself. These two things are married together and inseparable as long as you're a freelancer. And that's why I'm talking about working on your business and on yourself. One of the things you brought up that I thought was fascinating as master engineer working in a volume-based business, meaning you have to work on a lot of projects to make any real income, usually they have a bunch of tools and a lot of automation, a lot of crazy stuff they're doing. You said something that blew my mind when it came to like what tools you find is very helpful as a freelancer. What was it you told me about your tool set? Yeah, I got rid of it all. I reformatted my computers, got rid of all the apps and all the plugin on applets on Chrome and stuff. It was just too much of a distraction. The processing has a high level of knowledge and complication to it, but the inputs and outputs are relatively simple and direct and straightforward. And I found a lot of the apps and productivity sort of things that were all ancillary to that just impeded on, on my efficiency and clarity. So I was like, I'll get rid of it all, all of it. Which I was like, heresy, heresy, how dare you? I actually got a whole video on it, which, which has done pretty well, where I show how I use the tag function on the new iOS to organize them all into smart lists. And basically I just open up in the morning, I got these names and then Instead of ticking them off, if I need to follow them up, I just change the date. So many apps, it just impedes on, uh, not, not like those minimalist purists who are like, oh, you can't have anything. But it's just like, for me, it was sort of like all those apps and all the special features and adding a home address and this contact, like there's 50 different fields in one CRM card. And it's like, what the f***ing point? You just need to know, you need to know their name, how to contact them and what you're talking about. Cool. Okay. I can do that in, in my reminders app. I will not get that crazy and move to reminders for a CRM. I tell people all the time, I'm a self-admitted like soulless being when it comes to metrics and numbers and I love numbers and it's like a game to me. I'm still a creative and I still love creating things and I still have a lot of things that I do that fill me up, but I just love numbers and I love the things that CRMs give me as far as reports and metrics and data, but I love the simplicity as well. I love the idea of just deleting everything off my computer and saying, what is built into my computer? And I'm going to utilize that. You said you use notes. You don't use Evernote. You don't use Google Docs. You don't use whatever cool trendy app thing is, is hot right now. 
You just use the built-in notes on Apple, which is just simple. You've simplified everything by just removing all the tools and barriers that could, for some people, not everyone, for some people could end up being more confusing than relieving. You're just communicating one set of information. And if you use the 80-20 rule, there's only a small subset of the information that you can provide to these apps that's actually really relevant to the task at hand. So just to kind of go through the flow here, someone goes to your website, they fill out your quote request form. That just goes to your email inbox, just a normal email inbox? Yeah, it just goes straight to my email inbox. I see it. And then depending on the complexity of that input in terms of if it's something too complex, like I said, a five to 10 minute email, not going to do. I'll just be like, hey, this is really cool. Let's tear up a call and chat about it. And that's that. <laughs> Do Gmail even have built-in template stuff? Or I don't even know anymore. I don't use Gmail. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got cached. They used to be called cached. Now they're just called templates. And you just click on it. It propagates. And then you can fill in the, the gaps. And then if you need a reminder to follow up with them, you just put it into your reminders app or you tell Siri to do it or what do you do for that? What's your, I'm just trying to get your workflow here. I'm trying to understand myself who is like a tech nerd. I love all the systems and things that I have built. I want to know the simple version. When I'm doing that email, I'll just go onto the reminders app and type in John Smith follow up in two weeks. It'll sort it out. It'll know and I'll know and that's it. I love the idea of simplifying things, but like, here's the point is it's really not what app you use. <laughs> It is the fact that you're using something to organize what you're doing. For some people, simple is better. For some people, complex is better. It just depends on your personality. So if you resonate with what Nicholas is talking about, just mimic what he's doing, but make sure you're doing something. Don't just do nothing. Because if you do nothing, you're going to have a bad experience yourself. And that's going to trickle down to leaving bad experiences for your clients, which is going to leave a bad taste in their mouth, which means less referrals, less repeat customers, less money in the bank. And that's, again, at Six Figure Creative, that's unacceptable. I cannot let a systems problem deprive you of clients. <laughs> I, I was using a CRM and getting into that CRM was after, you know how you talk about metrics and looking back into everything. There was, it was probably maybe five years ago, six years ago, I looked at all my email inquiries. So I went on my Gmail and typed in, you know, project form, blah, blah, blah. So I sorted them. And I did a manual count of all my inquiries and all the jobs I got. And I left about $14,000 of jobs unresponded to. So I'd responded to the inquiries, they'd hit me back and then the email chain I just left off because I lost it. I was even more rudimentary maybe two, three years ago. I was just using a notebook for my reminders, just pen and paper. Even if you just do that, you're much better off than having nothing. I'll call you the purist, the tools purist, which is fine, a fine way to do things. I am more like when it comes to tools, I am the flashy peacock, like too much stuff going on. I have like five different note apps for different <laughs> use cases. I have so much automation. If you saw my Chrome plugins tool thing, it's disgusting, but that's the way I like things to be. But everyone can kind of decide their own path and their own journey. Yeah. So I, I love this, man. I love this conversation and uh, I love that you were able to share with our audience today, man. Where can uh, people go if they want to learn more about you or maybe hire you for mastering services or whatever? What is the action you want people to take that are listening right now? Okay, guys, you can find me on Instagram at panorama underscore mastering. If you're on YouTube and you type in panorama Mexican mastering, you'll find all my videos there or go to panoramamastering.com.au to find out more about what I'm doing. Be more than happy to connect with anybody that hits me up. And again, we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. If you want just one single URL to go to to find all that at sixfigurecreative.com slash 208. 